Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, John Good, and this is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of April 9th, 2023 through April 15th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube will keep pushing out content as it's released to you. And then if you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe on there and leave us a review. Let us know if you enjoy the show, if you want to hear about other things. And we take all that input and we review it and we look for ways to improve the overall show. Also, make sure to check out the description because there is a link to the show notes. So if you want to see the articles that we covered, maybe read a little bit more about them or read some of the other articles we didn't have time to cover, then definitely go on there and check that out as well. And that link will be in the show notes. So without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump into the first article. So first article, Flipper Zero banned by Amazon for being a card skimming device. Amazon has banned the sale of the Flipper Zero portable multi-tool for penetration testers as it no longer allows its sale on the platform after tagging it as a card skimming device. Flipper Devices CEO Pavel Joverner, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, sure I'm probably not, told Bleeding Computer that the company asked Amazon to reconsider the ban as the device is not capable of skimming bank cards. Hmm. Flipper Zero is a compact, portable, and uh, programmable penetration testing tool that can help experiment with and debug various digital and hardware devices via multiple protocols, including RFID, radio, NFC, which is near-field communications, infrared, Bluetooth, and others. Since its launch, users have showcased Flipper Zero's capabilities demonstrating its capacity to activate doorbells, conduct replay attacks to unlock car doors, uh, cars and open garage doors, and clone a wide range of digital keys. According to notices sent to sellers on Thursday evening, and this was Thursday of the previous week, uh, Amazon has now banned Flipper Zero on its platform, tagging it as a restricted product. So, if you don't know what a Flipper Zero is, it's, well, first of all, you haven't been following a lot of the cool tools that have been coming out. So that's, you know, one thing to definitely improve on. But a Flipper Zero is basically this little tiny device. It's smaller than a credit card. It's like this big, right? Maybe a little bit bigger than this. And this is just a, a remote for the camera. But basically the idea is that it can deal with a lot of these signals, right? The RFID, the NFC, and signals like that, right? There's a lot of cool videos that are out there as far as using this, right? For educational purposes only, for professional purposes, white hat hacker purposes, penetration testers, right? Authorized uses where you can uh, do lots of things, right? Like we've seen a lot of cool proof of concept videos with this. And, you know, the Flipper Zero itself has really been one of those uh, difficult devices to get your hands on, right? Since it came out, it's been pretty difficult to just acquire, right? We've seen some people be able to get them. And we've also seen actually that there are some scams that have been going on with people that are trying to purchase the device, right? We talked about that 
want to say that was like a month or two, maybe three months ago, something like that on this show, where we were talking about some of these scams that were going on, trying to go after people that were trying to get them, which typically, you know, a lot of the people I'm sure trying to get them have been security researchers, but really just trying to capitalize on the people that are trying to get it, right? Common technique, right? Go after what's trending, right? But, you know, with this and kind of this debate, right? So the CEO says that it's not a card skimming tool, which we know that there's a lot of tools out there where you can use it to just, you know, tap against a, a wallet or something like that and capture credit card device information, right? That attack is not new. We've seen a lot of research and just information on that, right? But when you think about this, right, a device that is more specifically geared towards really, you know, stuff like that, right? Like penetration testing activities. Yes, there is a good side to it, but there's also that dual use side, right? So the original, you know, manufacturers, developers, the people that are creating the flipper devices, the flipper zeros, you know, their intention, it sounds like what the CEO is saying is to produce something that can help researchers, help penetration testers do their job, right? But then there's the dual use, the other use side where it could be exploited or it could be used in mali for malicious purposes, right? We've seen that a lot in history that there are a lot of examples of that where people will take technologies and they'll use them for what's not intended, at least for the original manufacturer developer, but they're able to do it because of the technology itself, right? So we see that all the time. And we see that with other examples would be things like uh, military use, right? So if I were to create like a satellite, right? Let's just use something like that. Something very, very easy to kind of understand. A satellite, we put it up into orbit, it can, you know, help triangulate signals or pass along information. You could use it for internet, so like Starlink internet and help people do that. Or you could use it for military purposes, right? Military uses to track people, to look for specific people, to take pictures of specific locations, right? Like that's dual use, right? Like there are multiple uses that maybe you didn't create it for, but it could be used that way. And I think with Amazon, you know, I think with this tool, because of what it is specifically, that's why they're taking a really hard stance on it, right? You know, they, they send out emails and things like that. They're trying to go after people that are malicious and uh, fraudsters and things like that. So I think, you know, I think in general, they try to go after that kind of stuff and really shut it down before it impacts their system. Because as far as Amazon, right, Amazon's trying to take over the world. And if they don't, you know, then they're going to be real quick that, that scam marketplace, right? Where people don't trust it. And as soon as trust is lost, or if they're selling things that are illegal or potentially illegal, then the feds, the like FBI and stuff, they can just come in and raid at Amazon and they can cause all kinds of issues. So, you know, there's a lot to it. It's not just, hey, Amazon hates the Flipper Zero. I'm sure that's not even close to it, right? Probably people that are working at Amazon that have Flipper Zeros, right? Let's be honest. But uh, it is interesting when they, when they ban tools like this, right? I'm not totally surprised, right? 
a lot of times with penetration tools, it's kind of that controversial subject, right? And, you know, there's always going to be people that are saying, well, that could be used for bad. There'll be people saying it's meant to be used for good. Like, you know, so it's not, I don't think it's that crazy that we're seeing a marketplace kind of be like, we're just not even going to deal with it. We're not even going to allow it and just go on with their lives, right? Go on with things that are more cut and dry and just avoid that, uh, that controversy that might exist. So really interesting. Next article, cardboard drones running open source flight software take off in Ukraine and beyond. An Australian engineering company has created a cardboard drone that runs on open source software, standard hardware, and can be assembled and flown with no prior experience. The Corvo Precision Payload Delivery System, the PPDS, costs less than $3,500 a piece, a price made possible by the craft's use of FOSS and commercial off-the-shelf hardware. Michael Partridge, SIPAC's General Manager for Innovation and Strategic Programs, INSP, you know, <laughs> not making such long names to pronounce, right? Uh, told Register that Corvo uses Ardu Pilot, Autopilot software, unspecified hardware that uh, SIPAC customizes, and wax cardboard. The drone takes around an hour to assemble, we're told, and with its lithium-ion batteries, gives it a range of up to 100 kilometers or 62 miles, and a 3-kilogram or 6.6-pound payload. So, you know, drones, another one of these dual-use kind of areas where, you know, they could be used for good, they could be used for bad, right? Now, specifically because this kind of unit, this kind of system, this product, right, you can assemble it at home. I mean, it's it does kind of up the ante as far as, you know, how can this be prevented, at least from being used uh, maliciously, right? One of the things that this reminds me of is, you know, there has been this debate about being able to 3D print uh, like firearm parts, right? And I'm not, I'm not talking about, uh, or I'm not condoning guns or, you know, going one way or another or, you know, trying to promote them or anything, trying to sell them, nothing, nothing like that. But, you know, that does become one of those, those talking points, those debates is, you know, if it gets down to a low enough price and people could just create it for like a hundred bucks, yes, that, you know, kind of takes away the business from those, those companies, right? But, you know, does that then become, uh, start to become regulated, right? If you just go build your own drone, you know, and it costs $3,500, is the FAA or somebody like that going to come in and be like, we need to evaluate this because you're creating something that potentially could cause harm, right? You're flying it up in the air. It could crash because you didn't build it right. And, but you were able to build it heavy enough to where it, you know, if it crashes and falls on somebody, it's going to hurt them. So, you know, pretty interesting, but that happens a lot with technology, right? As far as the price, eventually the prices just come down on most things, right? And at least from when they're initially created, right? Because initially it's proof of concept. Maybe the parts are expensive if you're only ordering them in small quantities. And then eventually, you know, as it becomes more in demand, price goes down. Look at computers, right? Computers used to be massively expensive. You know, now they're not 
cheap, right? Depending on which kind of computer you get, especially if you get one of those Mac Pros or something. But, you know, prices come down on everything, right? Drones, when they first came out, were very expensive, right? And now we see little tiny ones, like the, the ones that are like this big, that you can just go buy at the store, right? Obviously, somebody had to manufacture that, but now we're talking about being able to build it at home. So it's just, it's going to further push that price point down overall, right? So pretty interesting, though. You're going to create your own drone. I'd love to see a video of it. So definitely, you know, let me know if anybody creates one or follows this. Especially for 3500 bucks, I'm going to guess most people aren't going to do that yet. But uh, it would be interesting to see. From Discord to 4chan, the improbable journey of a U.S. intelligence leak. In recent days, the U.S. Department, Justice Department and Pentagon have begun investigating an apparent online leak of sensitive documents, including some that were marked top secret. A portion of the documents, which have been widely covered by the news media, focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while others detailed analysis of potential U.K. policies on the South China Sea and the activities of a healthy figure in Yemen. The existence of the documents were first reported by the New York Times after a number of Russian telegram channels shared five photograph files relating to the invasion of Ukraine on April 5th, at least one of which has been since, uh, has been since, since been found by Bellingcat to be crudely edited. So, have you heard about this, right? This is really recent news. And basically the idea here, you know, from a general standpoint, and there's a follow-on article too that we'll talk about here in a second, but in a general standpoint, a general stance overview of this incident, they have come out and declared that the suspect was a U.S. Uh, national, uh, Air National Guardsman out of Massachusetts, where basically they were trying, I guess, trying to keep his identity secret. They were going to show up at his work and then arrest him. Right. But instead, apparently reporters found out who it was, went to his house or put out his name or something. And then they had to go and with the SWAT team and show up at his door. Right. Uh, I guess of his of his parents house. Right. Or family's house or whatever. But. You know, in general, right, leaks are dangerous. They can be dangerous to your reputation as a company. They can be dangerous to the reputation maybe of your leaders in your company, of people within your company, of you know products and services as far as leaks of upcoming products and services and releases, and you know all kinds of things, right? Leaks can be really bad. Now, we've also seen on the other side of that where leaks have been good, right? Where things have been so covered up and you know really tried to be hidden and you know they they were released by somebody trying to do good so we've seen both sides right with this i mean we don't really know a whole bunch about this yet this is kind of an ongoing investigation but you know it it's always interesting when we see people that decide to go leak things in this kind of way right when they use really what i would say unconventional uh, disclosure channels, right? Because typically, like with the U.S. government, right, there are internal ways that you can report issues because, you know, 
at the heart of it, at least with the U.S. government, right? Like they want to do good, right? Like they don't, they don't want to have these issues where they're like everybody's taking advantage of the system, right? Like that's the the structure of the system. Obviously, there's people that are like, no, no, I'm going to take advantage of things, right? And I'm going to do everything I can to just gain as much power or whatever as possible. That's always going to happen, right? There's always going to be people that are like that. But as far as the system goes, the system wants to enable people to uh, make the system better and eliminate you know, issues, right? So this is one thing that we're going to continue to see information on. We're going to, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how they try this person, right? And if it's behind closed doors, I mean, obviously, because it's going to involve classified information, there's going to be some things that are behind closed doors. But it's always interesting on that side, too, how much is available to the public or seen by the public, right? Sometimes these things will just appear to end, right? And there's a, some kind of verdict, but you don't know any of the details. And again, that's because it's behind closed doors. So uh, this article is related to it. Discord says it's cooperating in probe of classified material breach. It's a messaging platform Discord said on Wednesday it was cooperating with U.S. law enforcement's investigation into a, into a leak of secret U.S. documents that's grabbed attention around the world. The statement comes as questions continue to swirl over who leaked the documents, whether they were genuine, and whether the intelligence assessments in them are reliable. Documents which carry markings suggesting they were highly classified led to a string of stories about the war in Ukraine, protests in Israel, and how the U.S. surveils friends and foes alike. Although the documents have only began drawing attention regularly, Bellingcat said it found evidence that at least some of the files have been floating around on social media as far back as March or even January. So basically, yeah, kind of what this person did was they had this Discord server that they were like an admin of or whatever, and they put up these files or photographs of these files, whatever the case is. And some of the news outlets have said that it was kind of like, I'm bragging because I have access to this. And, you know, there's different theories right now, right, of why. But, you know, especially when you're dealing with classified information and the government kind of information, they're going to come after you and it's, it's going to be it's going to be bad. Right. Especially when, you know, it's not one of the it's not a just thing, especially. Right. Like if there was massive fraud and corruption, that was just like released it might be held differently than just like classified information like this, right? Um, not condoning one way or another, right? All the laws. But, you know, I, I think that especially when it's a younger person, right? They, they are not as calculated or they do not think these things through, right? They do not think it through that they're going to release classified information and that the government is just going to come after them with all their firepower, right? And this person has created quite the situation for their life, probably, right? And be careful. Uh, yeah, go through the proper channels. It, we see that a lot, right? And it's unfortunate how often we see it. It doesn't appear that it was for like getting payments, right? Which a lot of times that's what we see, right? You're being blackmailed or you're doing it for a certain amount of money. 
everything they're reporting so far is that it is not that way. And so that makes it even more of a, you know, a big concern, right? Because it's like, well, if you weren't doing it for that, at least that way is under, like, it's not understandable, but like it's comprehensible. Okay, this person wanted this money. They, they did this for that money. It's not good, right? And it's not right, but you know, okay, I process that, right? But when they're doing it just to like brag, you know, that's, that's an even more, uh, you know, questionable situation, right? And how do you identify that from an insider threat perspective, right? So how do you evaluate people to identify those kinds of issues that are going to come up? Now, you also need security controls, right? Because you've got to be able to catch that stuff. If people are probing around in areas that they're not supposed to be, well, you should probably catch that, right? You should have controls in place. You should track things like large files or files just being taken off the network. Where emails, especially with files, are going. You know, use data labeling. There's all kinds of stuff. But, you know, interesting situation and one that we'll definitely continue to watch and see how it plays out because more information is going to come out for sure. LinkedIn and Microsoft Intra introduce a new way to verify your workplace. We're thrilled to announce that millions of LinkedIn members will be able to verify their place of work with a Microsoft Intra Verified ID credential. By simply looking for verification, members and organizations can be more confident that the people they collaborate with are authentic and that work affiliations on their profiles are accurate. In just minutes, organizations can use Verified ID to create customized digital employee IDs reflect their brand and business needs. On LinkedIn, members will see an option to verify their workplace on their profile. With a few taps on their phone, members can get their digital employee ID from their organization and choose to share it on LinkedIn. After they send the credential, a workplace verification will be displayed on their profile. Best of all, because verified ID is based on open standards, it can work with existing HR systems, as well as a range of identity systems, such as Microsoft Azure Active Directory, uh, now part of Microsoft Intra product family and even identity systems that are on-premise. So, you know, in a world of social media and online presences, uh, we're seeing a lot more of this verification, right? And that is to combat things like bots and, you know, stuff like that. So it's easier to really eliminate those things. And something like this, it's using kind of a third-party verification, right? So LinkedIn, will rely on your employer, who will then verify you're an employee, and then it kind of just builds that trust, right? And so it'll be interesting to see how this kind of plays out and evolves, and like what things that this can be used for, right? You know, it, it, I feel like it's this push to tie in this whole ecosystem. And I think the next step is that Apple needs to create their own LinkedIn, <laughs> because, I, I'm not going to be surprised if Apple creates their own version of LinkedIn, right? Like it just, it is very, very interesting how this is playing out. So, but that'll be interesting to see, right? Hopefully it doesn't cost like $10 to verify yourself like it, or $11 like it does on uh, Twitter. You know, we'll see though. We'll see. Over 40% of cybersecurity teams told to keep breaches confidential. 
According to the report, 42% of the total IT security professionals surveyed said they had been told to keep a breach confidential <clears throat> when they knew it should be reported, and 30% said they have kept a breach confidential. The U.S. had the highest rate of 71% of IT security professionals saying they've been told to keep quiet, followed by the U.K. at 44%, Italy at 36.7%, Germany 35.3%, Spain 34.8%, France 26.8%. 52% of global respondents said they have experienced a data breach or data leak in the past 12 months. The U.S. led at 75% or 23% higher than the average, followed by the U.K. at 51.4% and Germany at 48.5%, rounding out the top three. More than half, so 55% of respondents, agree they're worried about their company facing legal action due to a breach being handled incorrectly. So, you know, with data breaches, right, the idea that your employees are told to keep a breach confidential, good and bad, right? So typically what happens with data breaches is there is some kind of notification process and a release approval process, right? There are only certain people that should be authorized to disclose information like a breach. That's totally normal, right? So. In this context, it's kind of hard to, you know, really back it one way or another, either, you know, before it or against the article and the information in it, because it doesn't really say who specifically is responding, right? If it's a junior system administrator, they should not be disclosing information like that, right? Like that should not be part of the process. They should not be the authorized party to release that or make that statement. So, you know, it says 42% of total IT security professionals. Again, yeah, I mean, if you're a junior person, you shouldn't be saying anything. Typically, it should be the leadership or like the CEO or their legal department, something like that, right? Somebody high up who is capable of making that statement, you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, to, uh, to understand this, uh, these percentages with not knowing that fact. But, you know, from a general standpoint, right, with data breach notifications and announcements, I think every company can get better, right? Because we've seen some, some companies just do an absolutely abysmal job, right? Just terrible at uh, producing notifications for breaches. We've seen companies that will come out and say, no, 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 we're good, we're good, right? No worries, we're, we're all good, we took care of it, right? <laughs> and then like two weeks later, we find out that, well, on this ransomware gang's website, there's actually a notice saying, if you don't release this information, that we're gonna dump everything that we have. And then they're like, well, we did get breached, but you know, we're, we're solving it or, <laughs> You know, they just like backpedal, right? So yeah, we see a lot of poorly handled breach notifications. So I think, you know, it, again, it, it's difficult because we don't know who they talk to, right? Do they talk to managers? Do they talk to executives? Do they talk to juniors? Do they talk to everybody, right? My guess is they probably talk to everybody and that's why that number is pretty low because that's pretty standard 
that you're going to tell, you know, your staff to not talk about breaches, right? It's not, it's outside of their job scope, right? <laughs> it's above their pay grade, we'll say. So, yeah, but interesting nonetheless, right? Kind of shows uh, the difference between uh, countries and, you know, nations, right? And how uh, locales, regions of the world, how they view disclosures, right? So, but I'll be interested to hear, hear a little bit more about that, right? Cisco to offer WebEx AirGap cloud system for security defense work. Building on its WebEx product line, Cisco plans to develop, uh, deliver an AirGap cloud-based collaboration system for companies involved in US national security and defense work, extending the secure offerings the company already provides to industries that require collaboration tools with strong security measures to meet US government requirements. Beginning in 2024, the new WebEx system, AirGapped Trusted Cloud, will provide an added layer of security for teams collaborating through the WebEx app Cisco added. In addition, Cisco has reaffirmed its commitment to providing on-premise solutions for top secret collaboration, including calling, messaging, meetings, and file sharing by bringing its enterprise-grade security in line with requirements set out by FedRAMP the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, which provides a standardized approach to security authorizations for cloud service offerings. So here's the thing, right? If you're in cybersecurity, if you're trying to get into cybersecurity, this right here is why compliance, GRC, you know, those aspects of cybersecurity and information security, data security, whatever you want to call it, right? That is why GRC is so important, right? Especially with companies that are cloud-based or that make an application, uh, especially when it's cloud-based, right? But in general, right? Could be on-premise too. Because things like FedRAMP are just increasing in their requirements and they are difficult to implement, right? Not necessarily difficult to conceptualize, right? To understand, well, I need these certain controls, I need policies, I need, you know, whatever, right? But it's hard to get everything working together, right? All the pieces working together, it's hard to get it implemented, to get certified and accredited and get that attestation. And it's also difficult to continue to maintain it over time, right? Those two things are very, very difficult and they're different kinds of animals as far as you know, how you approach them and how you have to go about them, right? Typically, the attestation process and getting certified is pretty, you know, short-term, right? It, it doesn't always take a ton of time. Like, it's not going to take you, like, five years to get your certification or your approval, your attestation. But then the, uh, the traditional method, right, with in this world, right, so with ATOs, they call them, uh, approvals to operate. That's basically the government stamp that yes, you are certified against these standards, right? So typically it would be like three years long, right? So you get an approval for three years. Now, in a lot of cases with a lot of these frameworks, that long time span is going away, right? They're requiring more frequent uh, re-audits and authorizations because what they're finding is, you know, Okay, so you get approval, right? You get accredited. And then the next audit isn't until three years later. A lot can happen in three years, 
right? Your system can go really wrong in three years. And then what happens? Well, that person that previously you know, got it approved, maybe they're not even around anymore. Maybe that next audit is somebody completely different that kind of took over, right? Maybe they took over in the last year, six months, whatever, right? And that initial system wasn't built to scale or to go with the company's evolution, right? And so you're seeing much more frequent auditing, right? There's other compliance frameworks and standards that are already doing that. We see things like ISO, right? ISO 27001. We see uh, SOC 2. You know, these are all annual audits. Now, they might not be a full audit, right? Because sometimes that's just not feasible. And some of these, especially like the larger ones, like a, a NIST risk management framework kind of based one or ISO, you know, some of these take a while to do, right? So it, it's not really practical to do a full audit every single year. But maybe you do a sample size, right? Maybe you do half the controls or, you know, you do certain controls this year and then certain controls the next year. And then the, the final year of like the, the coverage of the attestation, like if it's three years, then you do a full re-audit, right? Like th that's kind of where things are going for all of these standards, right? So if they're not there yet, that's kind of where they're going, right? And so these companies, right? The Cisco's, the whatever, right? Like all these companies, they need people that can come in and stand up these programs. Or for instance, some companies will have specific product lines or products or applications that are accredited to you know, XYZ certification, right? And then the company does every single one. Some companies will do their company as a whole, right? It just depends on what the business model is and what it looks like. But that's an incentive to go into GRC, right? That is a reason why GRC is a really emerging area and it's gonna continue to grow well into the future. I talk about compliance and GRC a lot because that and cloud are by far the two biggest emerging areas in cybersecurity, right? Like if you're talking about the corporate side, right? So your corporate networks, those are the two areas that are just exploding, right? And so if you're looking for an area where you can go really quick, that would be a good spot, right? One of those spots, cloud or GRC. And it kind of just depends on what you like, right? Sometimes they're intertwined, right? Uh, typically, GRC tends to be a little bit less technical barrier to entry, especially, you know, kind of when you're first starting out, that can be an advantage. And then once you start to get experience, now you have that specialized experience and you can kind of do what you want and you can get those, you know, better jobs too. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's just an example of it, right? All right, so we're gonna wrap it up with that article. That's gonna be good for this week. And again, this was your Threat Intel Briefing for April 9th, 2023 through February 15th, 2023. And I'm your host, John Good. If you're listening on podcasting platform, make sure to uh, subscribe and leave us a review. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube will keep pumping out new content to you when it's released. And then also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where you can see the articles that we talked about as well as some others that we didn't have time for this week. But with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. I want to thank you for joining me.
and I'll see you next time.